0: Our sermon text today is Exodus chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring will I give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, and if for a moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. When Moses turned again into his camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen."
1: Navigation, headlamp, sun protection, first aid, knife, fire, shelter, extra food, extra water, extra clothing. According to REI, the Outdoor Recreation Supply Company, those are the 10 essentials for any hiker who would set out on a wilderness trek. Going without any one of those things might hamper or even endanger anyone who would attempt to traverse rough terrain. I remember my first real hiking experience was in high school when I went with a a group on a two-night ten plus mile hike in almost a foot of snow. Uh, I came really well prepared with a cheap department store sleeping bag and And the first night we kept the vent open on the top of our tent just to get a nice breeze. Um, Yeah, I spent that night as close to delirious as I think I've ever been, imagining bears scraping up against the tent and all kinds of things. I think it was the closest I've come to hallucinating, anyway. It would have been helpful to know what to bring, it would have been helpful to be prepared. Well, church, in our study in the book of Exodus, we've seen God, or, or Yahweh, that personal name for God, deliver his people Israel from slavery in Egypt and lead them out into the wilderness. They're between Egypt, where they were in bondage to Pharaoh and the promised land, Canaan, where God has assured them he will bring them. And along the way, Yahweh has provided for Israel what they've needed, exactly what they've needed to survive in the wilderness. Food, water, protection, both from their enemies and from his own holiness. But as we come to chapter 33 that Jane just read for us, we see that the most essential thing Israel needs in their wilderness wandering it is now in being danger is in danger of being taken entirely away and that is the presence of god among them so with the time we have this morning in this chapter we're going to split up this passage into three main headings devastating news devastating news interceding prayer interceding prayer An amazing grace. Amazing grace. So first, what do we see? We see devastating news in verses 1 through 6, don't we? So look at verse 1. So Yahweh is speaking with Moses. There doesn't seem to have been much break in the conversation after the end of chapter 32 that we looked at last week. So last week, if you'll remember, at the end of the chapter, Moses interceded for the people's heinous sin, They had made a golden calf to worship in the place of Yahweh. And so Moses has has prayed and said, you can even kill me if you need to, Lord. And and God has graciously agreed to put off his judgment, even though many still perish. We we read that at least 3,000 perish under God's just anger. And in verse 34, look back there real quick, the the end of chapter 32, verse 34 Yahweh has begun to explain what's going to happen next. So after this terrible meltdown of his people on the plain before Sinai, this is what's going to happen. An angel will go before before Israel and take them to the promised land. Great. And he keeps that up here in verse 1. And he says to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So it's, it's great. God is not going back on his promise. He's still going to give them this, this land of Canaan. But then verse 3. Go up. Yahweh says, to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. God has led Israel out into the wilderness to Sinai, to make a covenant with them, to dwell in their midst in the tabernacle, to meet with them and to fellowship with them through sacrifice and worship. We've seen this whole covenant set up, being prepared. But now... Now, as of chapter 32, when they've broken God's law and Moses cast those tablets on the ground, shattering them, showing kind of symbolically what has happened to the Mosaic covenant, the terms have been broken. Now there's a renewed distance, a renewed separation between God and his people. Yes, he's still going to send an angel to guide them, but no, his presence will not be among them. Now maybe you're confused by this. I certainly was. Because if you remember through our study in Exodus, we've come across this angel, appear to come across this angel numerous times. So chapter 14, at the Red Sea. We'll even go back further to chapter 3, the burning bush, right? It's the angel of the Lord speaking to Moses. And then skipping ahead to chapter 14 at the Red Sea, we see that that the pillar moves from in front of the people to the the rear of the people to protect them from Pharaoh, and that's Yahweh. He's closely identified, this angel, with Yahweh. And then in chapter 23, after the, the book of the covenant, we see Yahweh promising an angel And he says that his name is in that angel. Even that that angel has the power to pardon transgression. Seems a lot like God. Who else can forgive sin but God? This angel is a way in which God is manifesting himself to his people, showing them his presence. So with that in mind then, how in the world can he say, my angel will go before you, but I won't. I won't be with you. Well, there are different viewpoints on this. One is that there's a difference between going before the people and going among the people. Right? So even before the tabernacle was constructed, God went before his people, but the tabernacle was going to be God dwelling with them, among them, tent by tent with them. Another view is that this angel mentioned here in chapter 33 is actually a different angel from the angel mentioned in chapter 23, and that it may not represent God's presence in exactly the same way. That, I mean, that would be great if that was the case. That would make this a ton easier to understand. But I think that first one is hitting more on the truth, because it's clear from this passage that God's presence is in a very real way being distanced from his people, even as he guarantees they make it to the promised land. Uh, The scholar John Sailhammer puts it helpfully. He says, Whereas before God had sent his angel to destroy Israel's enemies, now he would send his angel lest he destroy Israel. Israel. So in the present narrative, Sailhammer says, the angel does not so much represent God's presence with Israel as his separation from Israel. And that's what we see there at the end of verse 3, right? You see that? I mean, what's the reason for Yahweh's distancing himself from his people? He says, I won't come among you. Why? Because I will consume you on the way. For you are a stiff necked people. Later, he'll say, It wouldn't take much long, a lot of time. It will take a single moment for me to crush you if I dwell among you. He calls them stiff necked. It's a vivid picture, right? Their hearts are unbending, stubborn, stuck, rigid. You think about when you wake up and you slept wrong on your pillow and you can't turn your neck a certain way, right? Sin and rebellion harden the soul. And Israel is again showing itself to be a slow student of God's wonderful ways. So the tabernacle preparations are put off at this point. God's presence is very much removed. The people are stiff-necked. So how are they going to respond? Look in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. It's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of grief and contrition. These, these ornaments were like items of jewelry, and so Israel takes them off. They don't wear them to show their repentance, their grief at what they've done. There's a lot of irony in this passage, I think. We saw a lot of irony last week in chapter 32. We see it again here. Because what had their jewelry just been used to do in chapter 32? But make the golden calf. And now they shed it to show their need for the one true God. They repent. They hear the bad news and they mourn their sin. And dear church, I was reminded this past week from this passage of how it is a right view of our sin and only a right view of our sin that can show us a right view of God and his mercy. God's mercy will never be good news for his people if we don't realize how much we need it. So here Israel sees the extent of their sin and and they see also then their great need for God's grace. I think many times when we see the temptation in our hearts and really in kind of broader Christianity in our nation, we see this tendency to downplay the gospel, downplay God's mercy. I think that's because we've downplayed God's wrath against sin. And When we downplay God's mercy and get bored of the gospel, it's oftentimes because we've forgotten how disgusting our sin is to God and how much we need a Savior. A Christian who does not repent of sin does not value Christ. The old Puritan Thomas Watson said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So Christian, what is your perspective towards your sin? Is it always the other person's problem? Is it just kind of like, I mean, anybody would react that way? Is it something you constantly just explain away? Christian, soften your heart towards your sin. Only then will you be able to see the glories of the gospel. Think about it. Are the taste buds of your heart puckering at sin and craving Christ? Are you living a life of continued repentance? Continued pleading for God's mercy mercy through Jesus? A mercy he has already assured you is yours through the cross. All right, so Israel receives devastating news. Then in verses 7 through 11, or 7 and following, past 11, we see our next point, which is interceding prayer. So look there at verses 7 through 11. Here, it kind of seems like there's a little bit of a break in the current narrative, and, and we zoom out as readers of this story, and, and we see what has probably been in place for some time, and that is the tent of meeting. Uh, don't be confused. So, so over the past few chapters, we've seen that the soon-to-be-built tabernacle is often called the tent of meeting. After all, it's going to be a tent where God meets with his people. It's a good name for it. But here we see a, another tent, this one located outside the camp, unlike what the tabernacle will be. It's a different tent with a different purpose. It's, it's not built to house God's presence. It's instead built for God to speak with and commune with his servant Moses. So in, in these five verses, we kind of zoom out and we get a, a snapshot of what would happen during this time when Moses would visit this tent So he would approach it, and as he did so, Israel would come out of their tents, and they'd kind of stand and watch him walk out. And then as Moses entered the tent, they would see the cloud descend, and Moses actually speaking with Yahweh, and they would worship. Verse 11 is astounding. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. This is a reminder to us of just this unique leadership role that Moses has in this deliverance of Israel. He is the go-between, connecting them with God. And so, with all that in mind, kind of backing up and being like, okay, remember the, the status that Moses has with Yahweh, now see what happens. Moses is in a position now to implore God again. Verse 12. He says to Yahweh, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you haven't let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. We mentioned this in passing last week, but friends, notice again how Moses is praying. He's praying to God by speaking God's words back to God. Right? He's using what God has said. He's saying, you said this, Lord, remember? Remember? He's using God's promises to buttress his prayers. He's speaking of God's glory and faithfulness and why, if God will answer his prayer, he believes that God's glory and faithfulness will be greatly displayed. I wonder if your prayers have grown stale, hurried, meaningless, rote. I wonder if you kind of doubt that God will answer that. Maybe he'll answer if you pray that you'll find your car keys, but he certainly won't answer that prayer you've been praying for decades about the salvation of a family member or the restoration of a relationship. Keep praying. And in your prayers, brothers and sisters, speak God's promises. Speak God's character back to him. Literally, explain to him why you believe that answering your prayer will bring him glory. Make your prayers God-focused and God-centered as you plead for God's work in your life. He delights to hear his promises spoken back to him. Here, Moses is asking God to be with him. He said, you have found favor with me. You called me to be the deliverer of this people. I I want to know you, Yahweh. I want to follow you. And how does Yahweh respond in verse 14? My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Great, wonderful news. But, but I think this is a promise just given to Moses. Scholars point out that the you there is, in verse 14, is singular. So Moses is saying, God, I've, I've found favor in your sight. And God's saying, yes, I will be with you. You. God desires God's presence with his entire people. He wants Israel as a whole to experience God's presence. And so he continues and he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? I am and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It seems like Moses is wanting God's presence, not just for himself, but for everyone. God has called them out, he reminds him. You've made them your treasured possession. You've made promises. Make your name glorious by keeping those promises, God. Moses says, if God removes his presence from them now, how will anyone know that they are distinctly his? And church, I think this is the most sobering part of what I've seen in this passage this past week. Do you see the nature of Moses' petitions here? I mean, God has promised him a, the land, and he's going to keep his promise. He's even promised an angel to guide. The thing he's withheld is his Dwelling among his people. And and, and with that in mind, Moses says, I'm not going to move. I mean, thank you for all those other things, but without you among us, I'm not going anywhere. Moses is not willing to have God's blessings if he can't have God's presence. Here's how one. Author Alec Matera puts it, he says, we can feel here the spiritual heartbeat of a real man of God who deems it better to remain permanently in a desert place than to get into a land flowing with milk and honey and find the Lord is not there with him. And church, this hit me full on. I hope it does for you as well. Because how often do I, how often do you crave God's gifts but not God. How often are we as a church content with the byproducts of Christianity without knowing Christ? I was having lunch with a, another pastor this past week from Southern Virginia, and he was he was sharing a story of a family member of his who grew up in the church, is now a, an adult and just claims to be a Christian, and, and recently he, he told the story about how this family member was uh, in a restaurant and was, was approached by a, a Christian and asked if she knew Jesus. He was seeking to share the gospel with her, and, and it grieved him to, to learn that her responses were all positive, but had nothing to do really with knowing Christ. It was all about her doing things, It was all about her actions. It was all about her behaviors. And and there seemed to be no sign of a relationship, no sign of affection. How easy it is in our culture, especially here in Western Loudoun, in kind of the northern extent of the Bible Belt, perhaps. Where Christianity has been so widely respected for so long, to, to grow, to love the gifts God gives, but not the giver of the gifts. To grow to, to appreciate kind of the, the vestiges of Judeo-Christian ethics and not treasure the author of Judeo-Christian ethics. Moses was not, however, willing to have God's blessings without God. Are you? Are you? Would you be okay if you had peace in your family? Success in work, health for your body, long life, heaven for eternity, but no relationship with your Savior. I've shared this quote with you all several times over the past two and a half years, but I'm going to share it again. John Piper says this. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Teens and young people, I was thinking of you here too. Because if you've grown up in the church like I did, you've grown up around Christianity and claiming that you're a Christian, I just want you to know that this church, and I think your parents would agree, don't want just mere religious experiences for you. Good church attendance, so you don't go with the wrong crowd. Any Muslim or agnostic or Hindu parent would want the same thing for you. No, we want you to know Jesus. We want you to, to know Jesus. We we think he's wonderful because we have learned to know him and we want more of it. Relationship with Christ is, is more fulfilling than any other relationship you will have, including with a future spouse. Okay? So we don't, we don't want just a, a system of faith for you. We want a relationship for you. See Christ. Please see Christ, not just as a, a distant rule giver or deity. See him as your loving Savior who loves you and has died to save you. True knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, true knowledge of Christ, will always lead to a heart that loves Christ. If it doesn't lead there, it was never true knowledge to begin with. So, in light of the devastating news in verses 1 through 6, we see Moses' interceding prayer, and that leads us finally to our last point. Amazing grace. Look in verse 17. So it seems like Moses has kind of expanded his plea and and said, God, I want you not just with me, but with your people. And so Yahweh says in verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Next week, as we get to chapter 34, uh, we'll see this conversation continue and we'll delight, I think, to see a renewal of the covenant that Israel broke. Brand new tablets of stone created. Restoration of relationship. That's going to be great. But for now, chapter 33 kind of remains zoomed in on the relationship specifically between Yahweh and Moses, the the mediator on behalf of God's people. Yahweh has heard Moses, his servants, interceding prayer, and he pledges that his presence will indeed go among his people to the promised land. But Moses isn't done. Verse 18, he has another request, and it's kind of a crazy one. Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And in an amazing act of grace, God says, okay, I will. I will pass before you and proclaim my name to you the name of Yahweh, I am who I am, the self-existent one, the covenant-keeping, steadfastly loving, faithfully covenanting one true God over all gods. I will reveal myself to you. But there's a hitch. Verse 20. You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Okay, I mean, okay, great. Hold on a minute. Didn't we just read back in verse 11, though, that that Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend? So, why is now Yahweh saying, You can't see my face? Isn't that what Moses had just seen? A few things. First of all, I think we need to remember here that God doesn't have a face, (laughs) right? God is spirit, He's not human. So in any sort of picturing God as having an arm of might or, or a face of beauty it is merely him using our language so we can even try to attempt be- to begin to understand what language can't understand completely. So, It's a way for us to start comprehending the incomprehensible. This is all human language. The whole Bible is human language. It's true language, but it's human language. It's it's capturing just a speck of God's infinite being, but that speck is true, and that speck is real. Moses desperately says he he wants to know God more. And so I I think it makes sense to see that that when Moses was experiencing God's presence face-to-face at the tent of meeting, that wasn't necessarily a literal thing instead it was it was a way of explaining how moses was having this intimate direct connection to yahweh a connection that was as close as face to face but now he actually wants to see god's glory it seems like he wants to actually see god's face because that's how god responds you can't see my face you can't see my full glory that would kill you moses but god is a god of amazing grace He can't show Moses his face, but he says, listen, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You see the grace of God to to cover Moses, to shield him from death and yet show him a a part of his glory, revealing his character to him as his covenant God, condescending even to be known by name. See, nothing in, in Israel makes them unique. Nothing in Israel makes them distinct. Nothing in Israel makes them holy. The thing that distinguishes them, that makes them unique, that sets them apart is that God is their God, that God has chosen them, that he dwells with them. And brothers and sisters, a day came when God did make himself visibly known to his people, right? When God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, deity took on humanity. Jesus showed us the glory of God. It's amazing how Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. He says, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we see God. Jesus is the revelation of God's glory, and yet, Jesus' face that shone with that glory was bloodied, battered, and his body crucified as he bore the weight of our sin on himself. On the cross, Jesus, this perfect display of all God's beauty and glory, was killed for the sins of any who would trust in him. If you're here and you have not trusted in him, one day you will stand before God's presence. And either his presence will judge you and cast you away, or it will judge his son and draw you close. Turn in faith to Christ today and be saved. And church, can you imagine what it must be like to see God face to face? One day you won't need to imagine anymore. In his famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then what face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as i have been fully known church we're like israel like israel we have been delivered from slavery to sin like israel we have been we are on our way it's in the headlights the promised land of heaven but for now we traverse the wilderness And what we learn here is that as we do so, we need to cling to the presence of our God. A presence that now indwells us and will never leave us or forsake us through the Spirit of the Lord. His presence is with us and it gives us rest. So let us keep that that picture and that future and this present reality before our mind's eye at all times. As we pray, that waking or sleeping, God's presence would be our light. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you that you are present with us day and night. We cling to you and to you alone. If we were to go through this wilderness without you, we would be lost. So keep us, stir in us greater and greater affection for you. Be our vision. Fill our eyes and our minds and our hearts with who you are, with all you've done, and with what's still yet to come. And we pray that you would come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.